Hello, joint heirs. Um, it is uh, it's good to get to be with you guys again. Um, we were gone last week, and, and, and we felt the absence, you know, just being one week away. But, um, you know, this, this message series has been such a blessing, and, and I've, uh, we've, can I, can I move this? Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it's been such a blessing just on, on the various aspects of life in the church. It's been so sweetly encouraging and, and edifying and, and crystallizing. And challenging, um, and each of these messages have been so timely with these truths that we desperately need to hear, um, and as well as flock groups. I don't know about you guys, but I, I've been super encouraged by my flock group, and I'm really enjoying that time. Um, it is without question that God is at work in your lives, and we rejoice alongside you to the praise of his glory. Um, he is definitely at work in you. Now, as of tonight, we are actually uh, 10 weeks in. So we have just passed 10 weeks into this newly formed fellowship group, this uh, fusion of light in ETC um, that was really born out of the burden of our, our pastors' hearts and their desire for cultivating a culture of uh, discipleship. Um, in this generation, um, and I hope you guys understand that you guys are the next generation of SFBC, and the hope of all that goes on here with this integration of light in ETC, all of this message series and, and flock groups is really to, to set the pace for a biblical understanding of discipleship and a biblical understanding of your life, uh, your individual life in the corporate church. Um, and so we're really setting the pace for a lifetime to come. And we're investing in a lifetime of faithfulness and endurance. And so it's been a sweet 10 weeks. Um, we are 10 weeks old. Like, a, like an infant, you know, when, when if you, you have a, a new child, you, you're taking pictures like every week. You know, every milestone is a big deal. And 10 weeks is, is kind of a big deal. Um, but like a growing infant, there is also uh, growing pains, right? There's growth, there are growth spurts and growing pains. And as we continue to get to know one another and deepen our relationships and encourage one another and admonish one another and build up one another. Uh, what will make these relationships endure is the grace of gospel-based, gospel-grounded forgiveness uh, that I pray we would cultivate for the years ahead. And so that is the topic um, that I've been assigned for tonight. It is forgiveness in the church. And um, the text I was asked to preach on is Colossians 3, 12 to 15, which Alex just read. Thanks, Alex. And I'm not sure if you guys have attended many weddings, but this is a very popular wedding text, right? And, and it is very fitting because uh, marriage, it is about Christ and the church, um, but marriage is practically, it's about forgiveness, and that's because marriage is about Christ. And just as it is in marriage, forgiveness is crucial in our life together as a church, as a body, as brothers and sisters, as members of the household of God, as joint heirs, right, fellow heirs of the grace of life. And life being as it is, it's inescapable because sin is pervasive and everybody has somebody they need to forgive or somebody they need to forgive more fully, or somebody from, from which they need to ask for forgiveness. So as we make our way through life together, that reality will become more and more apparent. So with that in view, let me just pray for our time. God teaches what it means to forgive, what it means to be forgiven, 
God melt any heart that might be cold toward another person. Deliver and dislodge any heart that might be stuck in the muck, in the mire, and in the bondage of unforgiveness. Or a grudge, or a critical spirit, or a condemning attitude. Spirit, be our teacher and help us. Guide us through this text and change us, Lord. Amen. So, this world that we live in, this is a broken world. You need not look into science fiction or George Orwell or H.G. Wells to find a dystopian world. This is it. We are living in the fallout of a post-Genesis 3 reality. And the systemic devastation of Adam's epidemic has spread to all. We're all born into it. And we are all born with it. In the aftermath of the fall, humanity finds itself marred and broken. The bearers of God's image have become tarnished, tainted, and disfigured. Adam's transgression created a breach, a rift in his relationships between him and God, between man and woman, and it spilled over into all of man's relationships between brother and sister, between brother and brother. Because in Genesis chapter 4, we have Cain murdering his brother Abel. And between sister and sister, and between parent and child. We, as Adam's descendants, are programmed to destroy our relationships. We, as humans, are bound to sin against one another because humans are bound to sin. Now, this generation... I think some might call this generation the, the selfie generation, right? More self-absorbed and more self-entitled than uh, generations before. With rampant narcissism. Uh, but it is not new. Because when Satan tempted Eve to take hold of, hold of the fruit in the garden, he appealed to a desire to be like God, right? He said, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. You see, sin at its root, at its inception, is self-focused and self-exalting. And if you look out across our world, you look at this generation, you'll see that it is entrenched in it. Us 20 and 30-somethings are part of this self-worshipping, self-absorbed, entitled generation. Right? We're outraged when someone cuts us off on the highway. Right? We're ungrateful. We're demanding. We place unfair expectations on other people to meet our needs. And when we're offended, we feel justified to respond with anger, to hold a grudge, and to withhold forgiveness. And that's because we hold ourselves in such high esteem, right? How dare you say that to me? Or how dare you do that to me? But the Bible proclaims there is another way. There is another way to respond. There is another way to live. We are not bound to this. But there is forgiveness. And yes, forgiveness is foreign to us. And forgiveness is contrary to the natural inclinations of the fallen human heart. Indeed, forgiveness is impossible. 
it will take a miracle to happen within. But that's just like the miracle that was accomplished to offer forgiveness to us in the first place. So how does this happen? How, how do we arrive to the place of forgiveness? Where do we get the capacity to forgive? Where do we get the fortitude, the strength, the fuel, the help, the power to forgive? And with that, I'd like us to uh, turn, if we haven't already, to Colossians 3 and look at our text. Colossians chapter 3. So um, in this chapter, Paul is writing about putting on the new man. Okay, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been born again into eternal life. Okay, you've been born again into a new risen life, right? You have been raised up with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is our life. You see, conversion to Christ is a transformation. It's a regeneration, a rebirth, a recreation. And this new life, this new risen life, Occurs with, that occurs within, it compels us towards a new lifestyle, a new way of life. It compels us to a new pattern of behavior. So just, let's just read verses 1 through 4 real quick. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated, or Christ is seated at the right hand of God, verse 2. Set your mind on the things above. Not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now by the way, if, if any of you ever want a, a 10 minute exposition of, of those verses, um, go to Derek. He's your guy. <laughs> uh, he's preached that uh, passage several times for us in light. And, and it's been a, it's been a joy. So, and now in the next section, verses 5 through 17, Paul describes some specific characteristics of this new way of living that is consistent with this new life. Right? Because we have this new risen life, we are a new man. We're a new self. The new man is characterized by new desires. So the new man will have new hungers, new tastes, new aversions. Um, and some things will pass away with the former life. They are put off and new things are put on. Right? You toss out your old clothes of the former man and you put on new clothes that are consistent with the new man. So verses 5 through 9 are speaking about putting off the old. Right? You're shedding away the immorality, the impurity, the wrath, anger, slander, abusive speech, and lying. And then from verse 10 onward, Paul moves into the characteristics of the new man. And our focus tonight will be on verses 12 to 15. And we'll be highlighting Christian forgiveness. Um, so let's read our text again. Verses 12 to 15. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. And so tonight we're going to look at four Pillars of Christian forgiveness. So if you want a, a title uh, for this message, it is Four Pillars of Christian Forgiveness. Four building blocks, four foundations, four roots, four pillars of Christian forgiveness. And they are the fuel of forgiveness, the heart of forgiveness, the origin of forgiveness, and the bond of the forgiven. So first, the fuel of forgiveness. This is the driving force of our forgiveness. Okay, so let's look at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. 
No, I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> Before we get to the imperative to put on, right, Paul is reminding the believer of three precious attributes, okay, three distinctives that are part of our identity. These three realities make up the fuel of forgiveness. So we have chosen of God, holy and beloved. First chosen, you were elected unto salvation by God's free will, right? You were predestined from eternity past to be his child. Second, holy, you're set apart for him. No longer common, no longer unclean, but you're set apart as his own special particular possession. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, right? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So he took you out of the crowd of the masses and he claimed you for himself. You are his chosen, holy, and beloved. Romans 5, right? God shows his love for us in that what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You're chosen, you're holy, and you're beloved. Is there another text that comes to mind when you have these three, three, these three attributes? So one text that might shed some light on this is um, Ephesians chapter 1. So Ephesians is the sister book to Colossians. Um, Ephesians 1, just a few pages back. So Ephesians 1, uh, let's read from verse 3, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now, you need to really, really get this. You need to really grasp this in order for you to get a sense of the fuel that drives forgiveness. You see, God loves the world, right? Yes, God is a God of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So he's a giver to the world. He gave us his son. And he gives us air to breathe. He sends the rain filling the rivers and reservoirs that man may have water to drink. He waters the earth and causes crops to grow and flourish, right? I sing the goodness of the Lord who fills the earth with food. He causes the sun to rise on all, the just and the unjust, with warmth and seasons and beautiful sunsets and tranquil beaches and breathtaking, majestic woodlands. It is all grace, and it is all love. But his love for you goes deeper still. God has a particular, specific love for his elect. Right here in verse 4, he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Before the foundation of the world. He had you in mind before creation. Right? He knew you, bef he knew you before you were born. He formed your inward parts. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139. He knew you. He loved you before you existed. 
He loved you before you existed, before anyone existed, before the foundation of the world, before the world was made. He loved you and he predestined you to become his child. You need to understand that God loves you with a very particular, very specific, very pointed, subjective, individual love. In spite of your sinful condition, in spite of your hostility, in spite of your rebellion against God, before you existed or before you did anything right or wrong, he loved you. One theologian writes, it was a time in eternity before you ever existed, when God saw you in his mind's eye and he cherished you freely. Before you had done anything good or evil, he set his favor upon you. He fixed his love upon you. And he said, that person, I will so move through history and so move through their life so as to make them my child. Go back to Colossians 3. So you are loved with a special, personal, individual, particular love from God from all eternity. You are chosen, right? He's He's called you and he's loved you by name. You are holy. You are set apart by name. And his spirit is personally invested in your life for your sanctification. You are loved. Now this is a covenant love. This is a willful, volitional love. He loves you with a love that he has written in stone. His love for you is unwavering. His love for you is indestructible. So the fuel, the driving force of forgiveness begins with God's love for you. Before the foundation of the world, you are chosen, you are holy, you are loved. So we've seen the fuel of forgiveness, the driving force of forgiveness. Now we have the heart of forgiveness, the temperament, the disposition, the nature, the essence of a forgiving heart. The heart of forgiveness. Let's read again verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So put on. Here's an imperative. Paul's telling the Colossians, put on, okay? Having put on the new self, you're identified with Christ, right? Uh, earlier in chapter 3, you're raised up with him. Therefore, we ought to put on the virtues. We ought to put on the heart, the temperament that is consistent with Christ. Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh. So I'm going to ask you. What are we to put on? What are you putting on? What inner realities characterize your heart? Let's see what we ought to put on. The inner realities that ought to characterize a heart of forgiveness is firstly a heart of compassion. A heart of compassion. This is deep feeling. This is deep pity over someone else's difficulty or someone else's hardship. Um, Literally, this is bowels of mercy. Okay? Guts of mercy. Now, to to the Jew, um, I guess it's a a Hebrew euphemism, the bowels are a, a seat. They're the seat of the emotions especially of love. So where, where we would say, 
you know, I feel something in my heart. The Jew would say, I feel it in my gut, right? I'm, I'm moved. And it's, it's not just a thought. It's not just something that's, that's just, just an idea, but it's something that's stirring deeply internally. It's not just an idea that uh, kicks the will into submission, but it's a heart that is stirred and moved to compassion. It is pity. It is empathy. It is tender, heartfelt compassion. Guts of mercy. Guts of compassion. Um, I almost titled this second pillar, the, the guts of forgiveness. <clears throat> so first, we have the, the heart of compassion. Second, kindness. This is also translated goodness. This is a useful kindness. A kindness that is mindful of the needs of others and willing to meet those needs. So this kindness is one's disposition. It's not just external acts of kindness, okay, external acts of goodness, external acts of niceness. No, this is not the hands that meet needs, but it's a deep heart of kindness, a deep heart of kindness that's moved by compassion, that compels the hands to move and to meet needs. Okay, so it drives you to want to help someone in need of help. And you might give a meal or you'll drive somebody to the doctor or you'll pray with someone. But that's because you have this heart that is moved with kindness. This is a kindness we see that, where, where we see that we're vessels for the Lord. And we're entrusted with gifts and goods. And we desire to be a blessing to others and to be used for his sake, to be useful for his sake. So a heart of compassion, kindness, and humility. Humility. Now note, there was no word for humility uh, in the Greco-Roman culture, uh, nor in any secular authors uh, from that time. Um, Humility is, uh, as an idea, it was looked upon with disdain. Humility was cowardice. It was servility. It was... You get, you're getting bullied, and, and, and you are a coward, and you won't stand up for yourself. That's how humility was perceived. Um, and so Paul uses a compound word to kind of express the idea of humility. It is uh, two, two words, low and mindset. Low and mindset. So humility is a lowliness of mind. It's a lowliness of mind. It's esteeming oneself as small. You have a humble opinion of yourself. So the heart of forgiveness entails humility. The heart of forgiveness is not self-exalting or self-inflated, but has a deep sense of one's smallness, one's littleness. And for us who have put our trust in Christ, this humility involves the deep realization of our unworthiness to receive God's marvelous grace. And it means that we live completely dependent upon the Lord with no reliance and no trust upon self. And therefore, there is no place for self-inflated self-exalting, self-determination. But rather a lowliness of mind. Next we have gentleness, or in some translations, meekness. It's not overcome with self-importance. So you count others better than yourself. You want to lift others up rather than lord over them. You're not self-centered or demanding or self-willed, but you're lowly, you're tender, you're, you're yielding. And I must ask, are we meek? Are we humble? Are we lowly? Because it's easy to be proud. It's easy to be egocentric, easy to be conceited, but it's hard to be humble. 
It is hard to be meek. Actually, it's impossible without grace. It takes a work of God to become genuinely lowly and humble and meek. I hope that's a challenge to you guys as it is to myself. Next, patience. Patience is long-suffering. 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 It's having a really long fuse. Okay. Having a long fuse as opposed to one who responds with a, with a knee-jerk reaction or an outburst of rage. So if you are long-suffering, you have, if you have a really long fuse, then you will be able to bear with one another, right? Able to bear with one another. Bearing with one another or forbearing, it means to hold up, to bear with. I think Pastor Roger mentioned this when he preached on liberty in the church. So it's not so much, okay, I'm bearing <laughs> in love, right? I, I will endure. Um, but so you're, you're holding up, you're, you're bearing with, okay? So, so, so there is that negative element, but it moves to the positive um, of, of, of striving to bear, to, to have peace, to have grace in the relationship, love in the relationship. Right? With all of our idiosyncrasies and all of our weaknesses, all of our sin that we bring into the body of Christ, we must joyfully strive for love and for peace. And joyfully absorb one another's faults with a long fuse. Okay? Love take, takes work. Love takes effort. Love endures, right? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13. And I think we can all really benefit from having a longer fuse. Because I think we're, we're a very impatient generation, right? We, we uh, two-day shipping or next-day shipping, you know? It's everything's on demand, right? But I think something could be said about patience, right? Waiting um, and, and having a long fuse and forbearing. Spurgeon writes, cultivate forbearance, until your heart yields it in abundance. And pray for a short memory concerning all unkindnesses. And I believe God really grows that forbearance within us, grows that patience in us. The more that we appreciate the gospel, the more that we look at the gospel, and the more that we grow in grace, in the grace of God, the more forbearance we will have. And through the circumstances and adversities and the conflicts that he places in our lives, our fuse will become longer if we take our cues from the gospel and we respond rightly. Piper says, sink your roots into the gospel so that your fuse gets longer and you will become a more long-suffering person. So just to recap, the heart of forgiveness Entails compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. To boil it down, the heart of forgiveness is really a heart that's transformed by the gospel. It's a heart that has been revolutionized by the gospel. It's been blown away. It's been amazed and astounded by the gospel. And that takes up the third pillar of Christian forgiveness, and that is the origin of forgiveness. The origin of forgiveness, the model of forgiveness, the archetype, the influence. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other 
Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. All right, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now this word used for forgive that Paul uses here, it's interesting. It's not the same uh, that's used in, in other contexts. This word for forgive means to give freely. It means to give graciously, to bestow. So it is giving. It's not exacting. You're not requiring a payment or something to be given back. The word comes from, uh, it's charizomai, charizomai. Is from charis, 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 which is grace, right? It's from where we get the name charissa, um, or charity, okay? It is grace. It is, it is a gift. Uh, Douglas Moo writes, forgiving others is an act of grace. It is freely offered, and it is often not deserved, Often not deserved. Forgiveness is given freely. It is charity. It is a gift, especially when it is not deserved. Because we're called to what? Bless those who curse us and not repay evil for evil. Vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. So when someone wrongs or sins against you, you are called to forgive You're called to give them the gift of forgiveness. So this forgiveness is is given freely without exacting a return. No expectation of anything given in return. So it is given not dependent upon an offender's repentance. Forgiveness is not conditioned upon an offender's remorse or how many tears they've cried or how hard they work to gain back your trust or how how far they go to make things right. Forgiveness is not dependent upon how much they give to pay back what is due, to make restitution. Forgiveness is given freely. It is bestowed without any fine print. There are no caveats. There are no exception clauses. No strings attached. There's no fine print because forgiveness is grace. Because this is the gift of forgiveness that we have been given. And it is the gift that keeps on giving because it is the gift of forgiveness that we give to one another in Christ because of Christ. And he has gone forward to set for us the ultimate example. Let's read on, verse 13. So bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against it, anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So also should you forgive. He is the origin of forgiveness. He is the archetype of forgiveness. He is the model for all our forgiving because he has forgiven us. You see, we stand as forgiven men and women, pardoned. Because of a divine forgiveness that was not from this world. It did not come from here. It did not originate with man. But it is a foreign forgiveness that we did not understand and we did not know. We did not comprehend. And yet we stand forgiven before God. Therefore, we ought to forgive In like manner. 
Now, to illustrate this, I have no better way to, to illustrate it than how Jesus did himself. In the parable in Matthew 18 about the uh, unforgiving servant. All right, so Peter comes and he, he says to Jesus, right, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and, and, and I forgive him? You know, seven times, right? Look at me, look at me, Jesus. <laughs> oh, man, Jesus responds, uh, kind of a half rebukes. Uh, you know, I did not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. And he goes on. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was one slave who owed him 10,000 talents. So 10,000 talents. Who knows how much 10,000 talents might be in dollars. So one talent was 20 years wages. Okay, 20 years of income is one talent. So 10,000 talents, 200,000 years of income, right? And if you have 200,000 years on minimum wage, that's $8 billion, okay? Now, but since this slave had no means to repay, Right? Who, who, he, he wasn't Bill Gates. Right? So he didn't have any means to repay. His master commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. And then the slave falls to the ground and he, he begs him, he pleads, right, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And then the, the Lord felt compassion. He felt compassion, that heart of compassion, kindness. He felt pity for his slave, and he released him and forgave him of the debt. It is gone. You're free. But then that slave goes out, and he finds his fellow slave who owed him a hundred denarii. So that would have been a couple, a couple thousand dollars. And what does he do? Oh, it's all good, man. I got it. Now he grabs him by the neck and he's choking him. He says, pay back what you owe. And so his fellow slave falls to the ground and pleads and begs with him. Saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. Sounds familiar. But he was unwilling. And he went and he threw his fellow slave in prison. He threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Right? Then the master hears about this. He summons this slave and he says to him, You wicked slave. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his master, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Those who have experienced the mercy of being freed from an insurmountable $8 million debt cannot walk away unchanged. You just can't. They cannot help but forgive someone of a couple thousand dollars. If they are unable to forgive someone of those couple thousand dollars, then they have not truly experienced the deliverance of their eight billion dollar debt. 
if, if your heart has truly tasted, okay, if your heart has truly embraced the precious, precious mercy and forgiveness in the gospel of grace, then your heart would be won over to forgiveness. Your heart wouldn't be able to do otherwise. It wouldn't be able to hold a grudge or to withhold forgiveness or to pass judgment on your brother or sister. It just doesn't connect. It doesn't add up. Now, do you understand the weight and the gravity and the seriousness of our sins before God? I think we, we, need, to, we need to develop this, right? Because every sin, every little sin is an $8 billion sin before God. Do you, do, you, do you feel the weight of your offense before the holy God? You know, it's hard for us to see that because we don't see God, right? We don't see God. It's hard for us to tangibly feel the magnitude of our offense against him. Now, yes, we believe that as those who are in Christ, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins. Yeah, that doesn't mean that God is blind and just dismisses our daily sins against him as if they did not exist. That would be unrighteous of our holy judge. One author writes, we do more sin against God in a single day than everybody does to us in a lifetime. We do more sin against God in a single day than everybody does to us in a lifetime. And every sin is accounted for. There's no sin that is just swept away under the rug. Every sin is accounted for. And for us as believers, they were accounted for in Jesus Christ. Now, you know, one way to measure the severity of an offense, the, the, the severity of a crime, is by the severity of its punishment, okay? The severity of its sentencing. So, for example, if you have a traffic violation, speeding, okay, what's the sentence? Well, you pay a fine, right? Or burglary, maybe the sentence is 10 years. Armed robbery, maybe 20 years. Sexual assault, maybe 25 years. Manslaughter, maybe 40 years. Or premeditated first-degree murder, maybe life imprisonment. So then one might ask, what kind of an offense requires an eternal sentence? What is this offense that demands a sentence of eternal suffering and unending torment and everlasting punishment in hell? Everlasting darkness and deep bitterness and unimaginable pain forever. Forever is forever. And there are no breaks What does that eternal sentence say about the weight of that offense? And every single day, mankind in his arrogance, his actions, his choices, and attitudes bear witness to the fact that we don't take God seriously. We take God too lightly. As if the weight of his glory and his transcendent holiness could be flippantly brushed aside without consequences. 
This is rebellion. This is irreverence. This is evil. Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a terrifying thing for those who have tasted of the goodness of God, those who have been shown the wonder and amazement of the gospel and just to walk away and to continue and to choose your sin over this. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The finality of the eternal wrath of God in hell is a horror beyond comprehension. And you need to know that we deserve it every single day. Apart from Christ, that is our just due. That would be fair. That would be right. That we have a marvelous hope. We have a deliverance that reaches down, down past the depths of our depravity and grabs a hold of us and lifts us up with unthinkable forgiveness and restores us to a reconciled relationship to God. What is that? What is this? Colossians 1.13, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, if you are having trouble letting go of a grudge, or you're having trouble forgiving someone, I need to ask you, have you genuinely tasted the life-transforming wonder of the forgiveness that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. For those who have come to Christ in faith for salvation, do you know that you do not stand condemned? You are forgiven. You are forgiven. He has exonerated you, declared amnesty. You are forgiven. You are accepted by God. He accepts you. By virtue of the cross of Christ, he accepts you. You are accepted. You are forgiven. Because of Christ, he looks upon you with favor. He looks upon you with love. From before the foundation of the world, you're forgiven. No debts paid in full. For the Christian, you wake up each morning and it's a brand new day. Every day is a clean slate. Though your sins are as scarlet, you shall be what? Whiter than snow. You're made pure, clean, holy. Your sins, they've been taken care of. They've been dealt with. They've been absolved. They're gone as far as the east is from the west. As Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. This is amazing grace. This is gospel forgiveness. This is Christian forgiveness. It is rooted in God's forgiveness. And his forgiveness enables us to, in turn, forgive. Because we've tasted his forgiveness. And we know what it looks like. We know how it feels. And so we desire to gift it to others. 
You see, our forgiveness is bigger than us. You're forgiving your brother or your sister. It's bigger than you and your brother or sister. It's about extending. It's about echoing the gospel forgiveness of God to one another. As saints, as brothers and sisters who have been forgiven by God, and we echo his forgiveness in our forgiveness, we're acknowledging one another as those who are forgiven by God. For if a man, if a woman is forgiven in God's court, how could we withhold forgiveness and elevate our court higher than God's court? Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God. Be replicators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So God's forgiveness is the model, the source. It is the origin of forgiveness. So we've seen the fuel of forgiveness, the driving force. We've seen, we've seen the heart of forgiveness, the temperament, the essence of a forgiving heart. We've seen the origin of forgiveness the archetype, the model. And now we see the bond of the forgiven. The bond of the forgiven in verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So we find two, two themes in these two verses, okay? They're love and peace. <laughs> peace. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, so he says, <laughs> it's hard to recover from that. Yeah, yeah, peace and love, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Oh, man. So put on love, okay? Beyond all these things, put on love. This is agape, the agape love, right? The willful. It is the volitional love characteristic that is characteristic of God, right? So put on love, which is the bond of perfect, uh, or which is the perfect bond of unity. <coughs> put on love. The same love that is characteristic of God, the love that God has for you, put on love. May you be characterized by that same love, which is the perfect bond of unity. This love binds all of this together. Love is the all things enduring anthem to which we march side by side. The love that God has for us from before the foundation of the world. This love overflows in our hearts to others. This love is the banner over all of our compassion, our kindness, and humility, and meekness, and patience, and forgiveness. And it is because of our love for one another that we hasten to give the gift of forgiveness to one another. I love you, brother. It's all good. Right? And, and you see, there really is no time for grudges. As a church, we have the world that is already against us. We have our own sins, our own flesh that we're fighting and it's already against us. Unforgiveness and grudges just get in the way of our fellowship. It gets in the way of our unity. So put on love. 
second in verse 15, we let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So this peace of Christ, John 14, 27, Christ says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. When Christ came to the earth, he came to make peace. With who? Not primarily between men. But before Christ came to earth, before, before, before we came to faith in Christ, we were at war with God. Enmity. But through Christ, through his work, Christ has enacted, he has accomplished a treaty of peace between me and God, between you and God. He has declared peace, reconciliation, restoration. Colossians 1.20, he has reconciled all things to himself by the blood of the cross. Douglas Moo writes, peace is the shalom, the state of restoration between God and man that the Old Testament prophets looked forward to with eagerness and expectation. Because ever since Adam, there was that rift, that relationship between God and man. And that anticipation was for one day the mediator to come, to bridge and make peace. But also note here how you are brought into this peace. I'm going to close with this. But I want to ask you, how are we brought into this peace? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. We were called to the peace of Christ in one body. One commentator writes, the gospel is inescapably individual in its focus. Each of us on our own is called by God and responds in faith on our own. Yet, at the same time, the gospel is inescapably corporate. We are called along with other people with whom we make up one body. So as, members of, as members of Christ's body, we belong inextricably to one another. This is our life in the church. You know, I, I've shared in, in our flock group uh, several times, this is kind of just this, this constant, um, this echo through the things that we've been talking about in the book. Um, this, it's this recurring theme, this takeaway from, from our flock group meetings, from uh, yeah, Mark Dever's discipling book. It is, at the end of the day, uh, what I'm seeing is just the precious value of the church. It's the precious value of the church. That it's, it's designed as a means of God's grace to every believer through one another. That's what it's about. And it's, it's been revelatory. It's been encouraging. Um, you know, you just have uh, an even deeper hunger and that desire to, to be with one another and, and to go through life alongside one another. So this fellowship, Joint Heirs, it's, it's really about your understanding of the church, your ecclesiology. So after all of this, 
all that the pastors have done in, in the formation of this new fellowship, all the planning and investment in the flock groups. If we come away from all of this with a sturdier bedrock understanding of the purpose of the church of God, if we come away from this with a tighter grip on our covenant responsibility to this body of believers, if we come away from this with a heart that is brimful of love, full of love for our brothers and sisters, a heart that is bent towards gifting forgiveness to each other, bent toward extending God's amazing grace to one another. If that's what's happening in our midst, then indeed we have truly come to understand what it means to be joint heirs. We are fellow recipients of one all-marvelous forgiveness. Witnesses to one unspeakably amazing grace. Headed for one glorious final destination. Recipients of one shared marvelous inheritance. We are sons and daughters from before the foundation of the world. Chosen, holy, loved. We are joint heirs. Let's pray. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. And God, we have tasted of that grace, of that sweet, sweet grace. With our inadequacies, our weaknesses, our sins in one hand, And the grace of God and the power and work of our Savior Jesus Christ in the other. And we stand amazed in awestruck wonder. What is this forgiveness? God, may we not depart from that forgiveness. May we not move away from that forgiveness unchanged and hard-hearted. But God, give us a heart that is kind and compassionate, humble and meek and gentle and patient, seeking to love and to hold out forgiveness freely to all our brothers and sisters, common sons and daughters, in the household of God. And only you can do that work in our midst. And it is to that end that we pray. Amen.